0: Joe gets into a very interesting discussion on this podcast episode featuring Peter Doyle. They discuss everything from what's going on with inflation to why it's important to live below your means when you're an investor. Peter Doyle is the managing director, president of Kinetics Mutual Funds. He's a senior member of the research team and a member of the investment committee and the board. Tune in to hear why Peter thinks it's going to be more important to own Bitcoin over owning dollars. Let's just get right down to business. The Joe show. This, this is The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling by giving us a brief background about your investing experience. Hi, Joe.
1: So my background is... Um... I can't really think, other than when I was very small, that I didn't have an interest in investments. And um, I started pretty young. Um, my mom got me interested, and uh, we actually ended up buying McDonald's and I think Disney at the time when I was probably 10 or 11 years old, and you know, money that I had saved up through various birthdays, et cetera. So it, you know, it started young, and uh, I'm one of eight children, and my father died when I was very young, when I was four years old, and money was always tight. So... I had an interest in, in making money because it, I think that I always felt in the background there was this uh, issue about, you know, having not having enough money. And um, I went to St. John's University and one of the professors there was actually in the same class as Warren Buffett at uh, Columbia. And he started talking about the ability to buy 50 cents for a dollar, buy a dollar's worth of value for 50 cents. And it made a lot of sense to me. And I think I got hooked from that. So after graduating from St. John's, I traveled for a while. And then I came back and I got a job in portfolio management at a company called Bankers Trust Company. And I worked there building up my skills. And I left there after working there about nine and a half years. And we started our own firm called Horizon Asset Management. And that was in 1994. And I've been doing Horizon Asset Management. They started a second firm called Kinetics Asset Management in 1996, along with a brother of mine and a, another colleague. We're, we merged those two companies, Horizon and Kinetics in 2011. And um, you know, I've been working with the same senior investment personnel, uh, friends, colleagues for close to 30 years. We met at Bankers Trust Company um, and it's been a great ride. You know, it, I, I got lucky and fortunate to hook up with a group, good group of people. And You know, we we've been doing more or less the same things. It's kind of value oriented long time horizon, trying to capture the returns of the of the businesses themselves and really practicing what I call Rip Van Winkle type investing. If you own something great, the best thing that you can do is buy it at a fair price, let the business compound over time and let the business do the work from you and and don't trade. So we've had, you know, I've, I personally have owned securities for 30 some odd years in my my own portfolio. And as long as they look as good today as they did back then, I, I leave them alone and let, and let the business compound.
0: Now, did you first buy McDonald's and Disney because that was something you participated in, you ate at, you watched or... What was yeah, that exactly as a,
1: as a 10 11 year old kid that's I, that's I knew those companies it wasn't just right. you know that I knew how to analyze the business or anything like that but I
0: think it's very interesting because if we kind of play out to where we are in the market today a lot of people obviously over the last few years have invested in Amazon because they' got packages delivered to the door or they invested in Tesla because they bought a Tesla and they felt comfortable at the company or you know felt good about that company and they've all performed pretty well you think that's kind of a trend that,
1: you know, people should look at when they're investing? No, I, th- I think there's a lot of common sense to that, right? I think Peter Lynch uh, pointed that out probably 40 years ago uh, saying, you know, investing companies that you understand, that you know, that you products that you use, services that you use. Uh, so before, before we even think about s- whether or not something's cheap or expensive, we think through the qualitative aspects. What is this company providing? What service is, is it? What good is it providing? And is that product or service going to be demanded five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now? And you want, you know not, obviously there's no crystal ball, but you want it to be kind of that predictable business model. And you don't want rapid change to up, upend their business and disrupt their uh, services. So before we even determine whether or not we want to invest it on quantitative aspects, we're thinking through the qualitative aspects. And that helps you avoid a lot of problems. If you're right about the qualitative aspects, even if you overpay for an investment, chances are over a long period of time, you'll get bailed out just from the compounding. No, I like that thinking. And what
0: do you think it is? Do you think it's harder to find those type of companies these days?
1: No, I I don't. Um, Whether or not they're Priced at a way that's attractive, uh, I don't. I don't think it's any harder than it was 10 years, 15 years ago. I, whether or not you can buy it at you know fair value is another question, um, and that ebbs and flows with you know what invest other investors are doing. And obviously, you had a, a, a situation where you had interest rates really coming down for the last 35, 40 years, and all financial assets have been bid up pretty aggressively. Um, so it's it's a lot more challenging to find companies that have great Products and services, long product life cycles that are trading at a valuation that's such that you say, okay, if I hold this for five, 10 years, I can see how I could make a reasonable rate of return. That's that's a challenging uh, time right now. Well, I know a lot of the listeners
0: are definitely, you know, younger and they're finding their path or they're making their investments. And I think the younger you are, sometimes the harder it is to make investments that look so far out, right? It's we have a shorter time frame, or maybe they're in a position where they need more capital, so they're not as relaxed. How do you know? Advise people to go out and kind of find those companies that have that qualitative features to build confidence in.
1: So think through, you know, in in the case of a company like Coca-Cola or McDonald's or uh, you know one of the financial exchanges, is it likely that the world is going to stop drinking Coca-Cola. Is it likely that this brand is going to be displaced by some other brand? Is it likely that they're going to lose their distribution around the world because they're doing something wrong? So you start thinking through all of those aspects of a business, and some has to do with legal, some has to do with biology, some has to do, you're trying to use a lot of different subject matters and trying to think through the qualitative aspects. And if all of those line up, you say, yeah, I can see that You know, the volume of this particular product is going to grow with the passage of time. They have a competitive advantage. Their, their near kind of global brand recognition is going to allow them to enter and, and continue to sell that product You know, regularly from looking out over a five, 10 year period of time. Even if the world shift, shifts away and they want less sugary drinks, they have the distribution to develop new drinks. And I think I, they can place them in those in those stores and those drinks would sell well. So you, you start thinking through those Types of issues on a on a on a company, and that's really what you need to do. And if you if you say you know one of the reasons why technology is a challenging um, investment field is that the technology changes so rapidly. So today you're the standard, and you know two people working in a garage somewhere around the world doesn't even have to be a competitor in the United States. They can come up with a product that can disrupt yours. So you were once this great company and tomorrow you're basically by the wayside. There's no predictability of that. So there's a circle of confidence and there's a level of you know understanding. Nestle's chocolate. What's the probability that Nestle's is not going to ch- sell chocolate five, ten years from now? <laughs> so if you think along those lines in, in more basic terms, you say, OK, that I can see that business is going to be around auto insurance. Governments around the world require you to, if you want to drive a motor vehicle, you need insurance. What's the probability that's not going to be a business five years from now? So, you know, Warren Buffett buying Geico, he says, okay, this is a business I think that's going to be around 30, 40 years. Geico has an advantage because they don't use a broker network. They go direct to the consumer, all the commercials that you hear on television, on radio. And he can offer that insurance generally 15 percent less than his competitors in most states. And he says okay people recognize that it's a stable company it has financial wherewithal and i just want to pay less for my insurance why wouldn't i go with geico so he figures i can consolidate this industry and grow this business for 10 15 20 30 years long after he's probably passed away that's kind of the mentality that he has and it makes a lot of sense and i can re reinvest in this business and continue to grow it and get a good return probably upwards of 15 percent per annum on his equity and that's, that's an attractive business for him. So that's, that's kind of the thinking that you need to have. And I would say, really, if you're starting out as a young person, there's two things. You, know, you really, if you don't have money that's going to be given to you or you're not going to win the lotto, you, leave, you need to live below your means, right? There's a certain amount of income that comes in. Don't spend all that income, save some, and then start investing. It doesn't really matter if you're starting with a small amount of capital. It matters that you start early. And if you if you buy the right things, you'd be surprised how a, a modest investment can compound and grow into something fairly large in, in not too distant future.
0: What is your thoughts on liquid type investments versus, you know, let's say a venture or something
1: that's kind of locked up for a period of time? So there's a definitely a role for venture capital. Um, and I would say it's a it's a fairly modest amount in in my portfolio, but it's it's um, It's something that has to be kind of done in a shotgun type manner. Uh, You don't really have any great insight as to where that world is going. A lot of it has to do with new technology. So it's best to go and get a broad diversification within that sector. And the thing is that, you know, maybe you're going to be wrong. Let's say you pick a hundred stocks, you go into a fund, they pick a hundred different companies. Ninety-seven of them are probably going to be Average or below average, and really it takes three that are just going to be extraordinary investments that could drive an entire portfolio. So it definitely has a role. Um, I don't personally participate that much in it, um, but I, I, I can, It's definitely a sensible strategy.
0: Well, I mean, like a lot of investors I've seen, and I'm sure maybe you've seen even hedge funds or anybody that, you know, it, it's it becomes emotional your investment positions, right? And so, do you think investments that are locked up for some people are perform better because they're kind of have that long-term horizon versus something that's more liquid where they have the ability to be able to trade
1: it emotionally? (laughs) That's a great question because it really touches on what you really need to be a successful investor. The stocks and whatever investment that you're making are not your children, right? You shouldn't be emotional about them. And really, you don't need to have an extraordinary intellect. You really need discipline and you need to keep your emotions out of investing, uh, so if, if it's going to stop people from trading, it's probably not a bad strategy to have it locked up, you know, stocks go up and down on on reasons that have nothing to do with the underlying fundamentals, they go up and down because of people's emotions. And in some cases, there's a short term issue that's going on, but it's going to be rectified, you just need to be patient and, and hang on to it. So Taking that away from people and learning how to ignore that and recognizing that you know, a, even a great company can go down 30, 40% in a given year that has nothing to do with the underlying fundamentals, you, you have to learn how to ignore that and dollar cost average into it when it becomes cheaper um, and, and don't, you know, don't go all in at, at a particular time, which may be the wrong time from a, from a valuation standpoint. So on a regular basis, average into the market, find companies that you like and, and buy, uh, you know, over the course of a year or so. So how are you guys finding investments
0: today? And, and are you seeing anything at a fair value?
1: Yes. To answer your question, there's, there's, um, you know, we've spent the last 160 years building a global economy built on hydrocarbons. And today if you say hydrocarbons, it's, it's really anathema and people don't really want anything to do with it. And most corporations have been divesting themselves of that, most endowments, pension plans, et cetera. Um, you're not gonna switch to renewable energies that quickly. And people are pricing the energy industry as if it's, I won't say as if it's going out of business, but in an incredibly low way. And you know, when I first got into the business, energy was something like 25% of the S&P 500. Now it's hovering around two, two and a half percent. It got below two percent recently. What the energy sector means to the broad economy is something substantially more than two percent. And let's say you can argue whether it's 12 or 15 or 17 percent, and ultimately those stocks should reflect that reality. And what's happening is that major companies, major oil and gas companies have been underinvesting for a decade plus. They're not replacing their current years production. And what people are going to find, I think, in the not too distant future is that there's going to be an energy crisis here in this country and globally. And I think people are going to realize that when you want oil and you want natural gas and you need it, you're going to pay a much higher price for it. And I think some of that ties into the low level of inflation that you've had. You've basically, you know, since 2014, the price of energy has come down fairly substantially. It hasn't really played into inflation you get the price of oil back up from, let's say 50 to 100, and you start manufacturing your products virtually, you know, the 6000 products plus, that requires some type of um, hydrocarbon in in, in its manufacturing process, you're going to see much higher uh, inflation as well. So that's one area. And, And our biggest position is a company called Texas Pacific Land Trust, and it's a royalty company principally. And so there's no real production issues for the company, they just allow they collect royalties for people that uh, drill on the land that they formerly owned the rights to, and they also sell water for, for the, to the companies that want to frack on that land. So it's it's a, you know, a, a great business, low capital intensive business, and they're going to collect, in my opinion, uh, royalty checks that are going to increase substantially in size with the passage of time. Now, in the simplest terms,
0: are we basically saying that the supply has been slowing down to a point that the demand is basically it's going to be less than the demand. And at that point, the
1: price is going to change. That's correct. Basic I mean, economics, basic economics. <laughs> it's, it's, it, the, the, the supply has been been underinvested in for literally 10 plus years. And the demand is not falling off the way people are anticipating. You have the entire world is growing, particularly Asia is using, consuming a lot more energy on a, on a regular basis. Now, Right now, we had a demand shock in the last year because of COVID. But eventually the economy, this economy is going to open up and and it will get back to, you know, running at full speed. And the demand for energy is going to go well in excess of what the supply is going to be available. Um, and it's it's similar to when you're in a crowded stadium and you're thirsty and you need water. And you know that water is going to cost you $5 a bottle, but you pay it because you're thirsty. Yeah, And, you know, if you could wait, you'd buy it outside at a local uh convenience store at a dollar, but you pay the $5 energy is the same thing. If it's 10 degrees out and you want to heat your house and the natural gas, I don't know if you paid attention more recently, price of natural gas has spiked fairly dramatically because the weather got cold and there's a supply shortage that's going to happen in oil as well. um, And people are not paying attention to that.
0: So what is your whole, uh, what is your view on just electric vehicles and, you know, and, and that movement and does that have any impact on oil?
1: So, you know, there's no question that uh, electric vehicles are going to be more prevalent in the future and seems like, you know, more and more people would like to drive them. But people forget that when you go home at night and you plug those in, you're plugging into a a, a, a power grid that's being fueled by something, natural gas, coal, perhaps. And the ability to, you know, produce those electric vehicles require a lot of hydrocarbons. And it's questionable whether or not the Usage of an electric vehicle actually provides any great benefit to the to the environment versus a hydrocar you know gas powered uh, vehicle. Um, between all of the mining for the various cobalt and, and things that go into the batteries, to the steel that needs to be produced, etc., all of that requires hydrocarbons to make that happen. So people want to believe that do- they're doing a great thing. Uh, it's not necessarily clear that they are. Now, obviously, everyone wants a clean. Environment, right? Nobody wants to to be dirty. I'm not. I'm just not sure that electric vehicles and solar power are going to be the answer um, that people think they are. How do we get that? I guess we'll call it the quantitative
0: data on that. That kind of defines what is actually working. Yeah. So, so that's
1: out there, um, and there's been plenty of studies, and the studies indicate that electric vehicles are not any better for the environment. Um, so. You know, you go to Angola where they're mining for various cobalt and they're using labor of, you know, seven, 10 year old kids. That's not exactly environmentally friendly or morally just, but people don't want to look a little bit deeper. Um, so, you know, th- there's studies out there that already indicate it, and it's, that's in line with what I'm telling you right now.
0: Last year with the, with the lockdowns, I think there were certain cities that had a much cleaner air with the less, you know, <laughs> less travel to work, right?
1: Sure. And that's kind of insights less, into less, what it... Yep, yeah, less, less production in, in plants and lots of things, sure. If you're, if you're not going to, there's going to be no activity, there's going to be less pollution. That's not the world we live in. Everyone's you know, ready to get back to, to more activity and start flying again and start traveling and taking vacations, et cetera. So I, I can't imagine that demand, you know, if we really get COVID behind us and, and we reach herd immunity demand is not going to accelerate in, in a big way in the future. And what other areas are you investing in? We're, we're focused principally, we're very concerned about inflation. Um, I think people have not paid attention to that. And, and it really comes down to central banks, not just here in the United States. It's going on in Japan, across Europe, et cetera. They, the debt burden of the world is so large that I think central banks realize that they need to print more money and to debase their currencies in order to pay back the debt and to grow, um, grow their way out of it. So you're not really seeing it and certainly not in the reported numbers like CPI, which I think is really a use, useless measure. But if you look at the money growth, the money growth year over year is close to 25%. And that money is going in stimulus checks and it's going out there, it's being spent. It's not being held on bank balance sheets and not, and, and not being and, you know, kept aside to re, recapitalize uh, banks' balance sheets it's being spent and there's no time in history where you inject that type of money into the economy that you're not gonna see inflation. And you couple that with a potentially the rise in oil prices that I was mentioning, and you could get a very ugly inflation environment. So we've been trying to find companies that have asset light businesses that don't have a lot of um, heavy employment, a lot, a, need, a lot of need for capital expenditures, that have a royalty business model, Things like uh, the various exchanges uh, are, are, are also of interest to us. So you, you think about the you know, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. They trade various products on their exchange, and it's really a technological platform. They're bringing together buyers and sellers, and as there's more money in the system, there tends to be more trading, more volume coming through those, and there's very little additional marginal costs when you put through more throughput. So the profitability goes up ex exponentially there so we're looking at that we're looking at a company like Texas Pacific that I mentioned other royalty companies that really what we call hard assets they get paid off the product itself the the commodity itself and they don't have the capital expenditures so a company called Masabi Trust uh, that uh, benefits from the price of iron ore and the mining of iron ore so Look, looking at those types of uh, businesses, think, we, we've also we also yeah. own some uh, gold royalty companies as well, gold and silver royalty companies. How do you think you know what could
0: help investors kind of form their own opinion of what will happen with inflation? How they can better allocate you know for their portfolio because. You know uh, sometimes it's hard to really under, have a full understanding of what's going on, you know even over the last decade, maybe people thought there was going to be more inflation than there was or maybe there actually was, and it's not as measured uh and and then moving forward i mean it's it's easy to believe i guess in all the fl- inflation based on the money printing, but at some point you know wh- where does affordability come into play actually in u s based on the average household and you know how will the government keep that in balance with, with the voters and so forth.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> if, if, if you, know, you know, the CPI is a, is a number that is produced to help the U.S. government in their entitlement payments and everything else like that. But the, the, the things that you most desire in life, whether it's a second home, a great education for your kids, good health care... Uh, those types of things, child care, those, those types of goods and services are growing at a much, much higher clip than CPI. So anything that the typical person aspires to, is growing at 7 8% per annum. So that's really the true inflation number. And they could tell you it's much lower than that, but that's really, the, those are the goods and services that you want and you need in your life. I would say that to look at it, and the, the big difference now, as opposed to coming out of the, uh, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, the amount of currency that has been injected into the economy is just absolutely staggering. And as I mentioned, it's 25% year over year. And there's no time in, in the history of civilization where you inject a lot more money into the economy and you don't have a much higher level of inflation. So I would keep an eye on that. So you know, there's a stimulus package that's coming out. It's going to be $1.9 trillion stimulus package. That money has to come from somewhere. So people need to sit and say, well, where do they get that $1.9 trillion? Well, they're going to print it up. And they print that up out of thin air. And every time you put in more currency out in circulation with more or less the same goods and services available, it results in inflation. So we haven't seen it. In reported numbers, but we would definitely have seen it in other types of assets. So if you wanted to buy a home in, you know, go out to Long Island in the Hamptons or the cost of sending your kid to a good four year school, that's there's real inflation there. And, and I think most people understand that. So I have also a lot of friends in the
0: residential slash, you know, multifamily market and, you know, their projections on their rent increases with inflation, uh, you know, are pretty high for let's say the next five years. At what point does it become unaffordable for the majority of people? And you know what what kind of happens? What you know what friction will occur?
1: Yeah. Well, listen. I, I think I think it, what you ha- what you've seen for the last thirty years is that real household income really has not risen, um, and that's why you saw this populist movement going on not here just in this country but around the world. Uh, there's real backlash, and you know the the recent uh, activity in GameStop uh, stock was kind of a populist movement. And you have this kind of society that developed online and really it was kind of built around, hey, here's an opportunity, but not only is it an opportunity, but it's a way for us to stick a finger in the eye of the elites. So that, that kind of is already out there and it's bubbling just below the surface. And that's why you know they're gonna, they're gonna try to do this um, in a way that's gonna be tolerable to people uh, but they really have no choice. They can default on the currency, which is really not a good option, or they can inflate their way out of it. And they're going to have to inflate their way out of it. And hopefully, it doesn't lead to more civil unrest and real problems in society here. It's going to be a tricky situation. Uh, so, you know, the great thing about this country is that there's been a lot of innovation. And hopefully, that, you know, the people that the true innovators come out and they develop industries that we're not even thinking about today. And there's going to be growth along those paths, and we can get through this um, okay. But it, it's going it's to be a very trying time for a lot of people. Um, so I think you really need to be paying attention to that. I, need, I think you really need to be preparing your portfolios for that to hedge against that debasement of currency and that loss of purchasing power. Yeah, I mean, I guess that brings to tech, tech. You know, do you believe tech is deflationary? Is it bringing down the cost of you know certain things? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so that that's been one of the things that have has held down inflationary pressures, but it hasn't held down a lot of things. there has been real financial inflation, right? So, the, a lot of the craziness and the valuations that you're seeing right now has to do with is it a bubble? And maybe if everything's in a bubble, which is pretty much everything is it's because your currency is a bubble. And that's that's really the issue that's going on right now. So if you look at stock valuations, whether on trailing PEs and cyclically, cyclically adjusted trailing PEs, it's at close to all-time highs. Market capitalization to GDP, all-time high. So in very, very good sound measures of valuation, there's a lot to be nervous about. The On the flip side, the central bank is probably not going to have the ability to raise rates. So maybe, you know, valuations don't come crashing down, but it's hard to see how you're going to make money there. But it's, it's a real issue. And, and it's something that you know, we're, we're dealing with. I, I, think, I think we're right in how we positioned our funds. Um, I think you know, what I'm saying to you, unfortunately, is going to come back and you need to be in companies that really can defend themselves for the debasement of the currency and a higher level of inflation is, is really what the world we're in right now
0: know everyone's trying to form an opinion on what interest rates will do, because that ultimately affects a lot of different things. So what is your take on the next five years, 10 years, 20 years? So we've, we've been
1: saying for a long, long time, uh, going back to 2008, 2009, that the debt burden is so large that the central bank really doesn't have it, an option to raise rates aggressively. You raise rates 2 3%, it will choke off the economy very quickly because of the debt burden. And they tried it back at the end of 2018, and the stock market rolled over 20% in a very short period of time. Uh, they tried quantitative tightening. That didn't, that didn't fly. So my guess is that they're going to artificially keep rates very low for a very long period of time. You're going to see probably low rates for 20, 30 years. Um, they're forced to as they continue to print up more money and debase the, the, the dollar to pay back and hopefully grow out of it with time. This is We, we went through a, a period like this in the 1940s where the debt burden was so large and they inflated and held rates low. Um, th- there, it was a little bit different. Um, the debt burden wasn't quite as large. And there was coming out of World War II, you had this ability and the rest of the world needed to be rebuilt and they were buying for the United States. So you could, you could get the benefit of that. That's not the case today. So it's, it's a much more challenging environment today than it was uh, in the past.
0: Since the bond market has changed over the years, and then how do you see the current allocation, you know, when it comes to people's portfolios not being, I guess, a 60-40 anymore?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I the way I look at the bond market is, is all risk, no return. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, you, you're talking about a 10-year treasury at little over 1%, 115. I haven't looked in the last couple of days. But if you adjust for inflation, it's a negative real return. So you're parking your money for 10 years to, to guaranteed loss. And if you don't believe the inflation, reported inflation numbers and you think it's substantially higher, you're probably losing 50% of that over the course of 10 years. That's not an option. That's not a good option. People may feel okay, like they're getting their principal back, but that's you have to think in real terms. You know, I've been I've been slowly, slowly getting out of my bonds and moving it into the inflation beneficiaries that I mentioned
0: earlier. So you're basically saying ninety five percent, hundred percent into those companies or that that'll benefit
1: from inflation, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. As, so do you think- I, I keep I keep working down those assets that are exposed to that? scenario that I'm describing to you and and moving it into where companies that I think are asset light inflation beneficiary companies.
0: So how will the fixed income market look, you know, over the next decade and
1: kind of, you
0: know, how does it, how does the picture get painted for people that are retiring?
1: Um, It's, it's challenging. It's, it's a really, it's, you know, you may have retired with, you know, everyone loves low interest rates, but if you're on a, you know, you have a fixed income portfolio, and you were formerly getting six percent, and now you're getting one percent. You're you're going to be challenged in a in a very aggressive way. My guess is that the federal government is going to be a lot bigger buyer of a fixed income to to fund their spending um, because they're not going to get it through market participants. And people are going to be looking elsewhere to get to to hedge their portfolios and and to move in to protect themselves against inflation. So it, it's 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 a real challenge. You know, if you're on a fixed income, you're on a annuity, a pension, or something like that, you're you're challenged. Your your purchasing power is going to go down, um, and you you need to be able to try to hedge yourself with that with uh, inflation
0: beneficiaries. Now there's a lot of talk in the market about Bitcoin. <laughs> kind of what's your position and you know how long have you been involved?
1: So, we've been involved since uh, 2015 and it's worth, you know, telling you a little bit of a story as to how we got involved. My my colleague is a, a brilliant financial mind. He has a degree in mathematics, degree in computer science and he has an interest in cryptography. So, he was reading the um, actually the Bitcoin white paper was left on his desk for a number of months and he was just busy and he'd get around to it. He goes, you know what? He came into the office that day. He goes, I'm going to shut the door. I'm going to read the nine pages, see what's going on here because I'm hearing some things about it. He reads it and he gets up and he walks into my office and he tells me the story. And this is late 2015. And he says, well, I think they've solved the issue of digital money and they, they've they uh, come up with a way to prevent double spending, right? If people can spend the same dollar twice, it's really not useful. And he describes that there's gonna be a limited supply. There's a scarcity to this. There's gonna only be 21 coins with the passage of time. And I said, well, what you're telling me, if you think that this is, if they've, they've prevented the ability to double spend and uh, so people can't counterfeit, you think the technology is going to hold and the blockchain is not going to be hacked. And you're telling me that there's a limited amount. Then I could see that this potentially has the greatest supply demand imbalance that the world is ever going to see. And I would say it took me about probably literally a, a minute and a half. And I said, I, I'm in. And a couple of reasons. Now, I had the benefit. I trusted his ability to analyze that and tell me from a technological standpoint. But I recognized almost immediately through a scarcity supply demand from an economic lens. And I recognized that ultimately I saw what was happening with fees on Wall Street with money moving into ETFs and people able to trade for free, that Wall Street would ultimately embrace this because they wanna charge people higher prices for a new asset class. So I see our greed potentially. Mm -hmm. So I I, I immediately got in, uh, probably within three or four days I I had a position and professionally probably within a week's time I had a, a, a position. And the way I looked at it, I said, this is is the most asymmetric return potential I've ever seen in my career. And I don't need a lot of it. If I made it a 50 basis point position, one half of 1% in people's accounts, if it went to zero, nobody's going to be that upset. If it it did over the course of two years, I lose 25 basis points a year. It's a rounding error in terms of their performance. In success mode, I could see how it could go up, not just 10 times, not just 20 times, I'm talking many thousands of times. So I said, I've never seen an investment opportunity like this. And we said, just on that, we should own this. And that's how we got involved with it. Now, as I've gone further down the road and looking into it and understanding it on my own, I've come to it through an engineering standpoint. It's probably the most sound engineering project in terms of a monetary asset that I've ever seen in my life. And if you think about the network effect of companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook, et cetera, and how they created this wealth for their shareholders because they grew and they were able to reach and distribution grew exponentially. Bitcoin is a monetary network. And if people build on that network, it's the most secure monetary network. If people build applications for that monetary network, they start bringing money into that network. It grows exponentially. So in the case of, let me just make a distinction. In the case of Facebook, there's only 7.7 billion people in the world and not everyone's going to have access to it on the internet. So let's say they can get 5 billion people. Maybe you bring your friends, your family, you know, et cetera, onto it. You can bring a handful of people, each person. And ultimately, they let's say they get to the $5 billion In a monetary network, I can invest $10. I can invest a million dollars. Somebody else could come in and invest a million dollars or put a billion dollars into this network. So there's literally hundreds of trillions of dollars that could come on to this network. And that's what we're in the process of seeing. And I think people are, are beginning to accept this that this is a much better store of value and it's becoming much more mainstream. So now you can buy Bitcoin on PayPal, on Square Cash app. In the not too distant future, you know, most people are gonna be walking, not most people, but a lot more people are gonna be walking around with a crypto credit card or debit card. So all of those applications are being built and they're bringing money onto this new network. And there's a scarcity of how many Bitcoins that are ever gonna be outstanding, 21 million. So eventually people are going to start pricing things not in whether it's a whole bitcoin or a half bitcoin they're going to be pricing it into their smallest denomination satoshis so my, my guess is that a single bitcoin is going to go up exponentially from here potentially into the many millions of dollars with the passage of time it's not going to happen in two days six weeks or <laughs> like that. but it's, it's going to happen much quicker than people realize so What I tell everyone that I meet and my children say, dad, it doesn't make you interested to talk about Bitcoin all the time. There's some number that everyone has in their head that they can risk. And for someone, it might be $27. Somebody else, it might be $1,412. Someone else could be $600,000. If that went to zero, you wouldn't care, right? You wouldn't like it, but if it went to zero, you wouldn't care that's the minimum that you should have exposed to Bitcoin. So, you know, to your listeners and particularly if they're young, this is a very exciting area and I would encourage them to get up to speed as quickly as possible and definitely to have some exposure to it. Again, you don't have to make it a huge, huge position but it'd be a big mistake uh, as a hedge against the debasement of the world's global currencies I think it's 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 imprudent not to have exposure to it.
0: No, I agree. I agree. It's good to start with a small amount, get exposure, have an understanding of what the market is, and and kind of establish your own belief of you know what it's going to do. Because from there, if you then actually believe in Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, that your allocation
1: will probably grow over time. Absolutely, absolutely. As you get down further and long, you know people people say you know how can this be a store of value? It fluctuates so much. And if you don't, if that's, they're, they're saying it because they're thinking in dollar terms. I really kind of switched over some months ago. I now think in Bitcoin terms. And I say one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. And I look at the dollar, the dollar gyrates like crazy relative to Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And since I've been in it, the volatility in the dollar has been quite large, but it's been negative volatility. And when I first bought my first Bitcoin, it was around $450. And today it's $35,000. So that's the type of volatility I can live with. Um, It's the right type of volatility when you're long Bitcoin. So I think people are going to realize that as a store of value, um, it's not just the US dollar. I don't want to just pick on the US. This is going on globally. So if it it is deemed to be the best store of value, the best form of money that the world has ever come up with, then all of the nominal stores of value that are out there, US dollars, yens, euros, short-term treasury bills, et etc., all of those things will ultimately gravitate and Bitcoin will be a suction pump and take a lot of valuation from that and ultimately it should rival those other nominal stores of value. And that number is a staggering, staggering number. And, and I sound crazy saying that, um, but if, if the blockchain is never hacked and they don't violate that and you can never double spend... There's no reason to believe that a single Bitcoin can't go, you know, to some multi-million dollar number.
0: Time will tell, right? Time will tell. <laughs> Time will tell.
1: Time will tell. And, and listen, there's no guarantees in life and, and you don't need a ton of money uh, allocated there to, to make that happen. So
0: how do you, you know, I'm sure uh, when your friends and family are aware of you investing in Bitcoin, that they generally approach you and, and get your opinion on what they should do or more about it. How do you kind of basically explain it to
1: them? So just just very similar to, to what I did. You know, I don't, you know, I'm I'm in my mid-50s. Some would say upper 50s. And I never lack the imagination that, you know, the world is going to shift to a digital world, right? You've seen it in your music, you've seen it in other areas of your life. So it's not inconceivable to me that my grandchildren will never understand what it have it is to have a quarter in their pocket. Right. So it's it's just it's just the next extension of that. You know, I, I grew up in a world without cell phones you know, for a big chunk of my life without the internet. And now, you know, there's not a day that I don't use both, you know, quite a bit. So the next evolution of money is going to be digital. And whether it's Bitcoin or, or its successor, if Bitcoin failed, I don't think it will. But if Bitcoin failed, they're going to figure out a way to, to guarantee that they people can't double spend and it will be a better store of value. Um, so, Just just having that ability to have a little bit of an imagination, you should be able to see that, yeah, maybe I should own a little bit of this. And and really money is a social construct and it's a belief system. And what people don't realize is the dollar really is not backed by anything. And as they continue to print more and more dollars, it's quite possible that the world will say, I don't trust your currency anymore, even though it's the United States. Um, But since the Federal Reserve was started in 1913, you were debased out of your money value probably upwards of 96, 97% from inflation. And they're now doing it at a much more rapid pace. And it's not inconceivable to me that the world wakes up and you can see very short order that, why do I want to own this anymore? I have this better store of value here in Bitcoin. I should own some of that. And I I think just on that alone, you should allocate, again, a small amount, the amount that if it went to zero, it's not going to hurt you and et cetera.
0: So do you guys just allocate specifically to Bitcoin itself or do you have any other
1: investments in the crypto area? So so one of the things that we really loved about Bitcoin was the monetary policy and that's really what gives it its value. And most of the other coins out there there's something like 83 8400 new coins or tokens, <laughs> who knows. <laughs> you know, it, it it's changing that fast, right? That, that's probably a week old data. It Could be, you know, 8700 by now. <laughs> Most of those are controlled by a handful of people. And there was a pre-mine and they gave themselves, let's say they're going to have 100 million. They gave themselves 70 million out of the 100 million. And then they're going to sell a certain number to, to get a price on it. Why do I trust them any more than I trust central bankers? Bitcoin was really a labor of love. And it was probably the most fair that it was distributed. Whatever, whatever Bitcoin is, I can tell you it's not a Ponzi scheme, right? You opt into the system. Nobody induced me to buy Bitcoin. Nobody forced me to buy Bitcoin. Nobody sold me Bitcoin. I said, I want in on this system. I'm gonna start mining this. I'm gonna start being part of the nodes that are going to verify the transactions, et cetera. So that's unlike the overwhelming majority of other coins out there. So what I look at and what we look at is we're looking for coins that might have a very good solid monetary policy and are not controlled by and centralized behind a group of people. And Bitcoin is a decentralized monetary network. Nobody controls it. And that's, that's very attractive. And people are starting to understand from a technological standpoint, centralization of data is a very dangerous thing. You know, you had the hacking into the US government, the department of Defense. you know, target, uh, the super, uh, the whatever department store, et cetera. That's all centralized data. Decentralized is safer. And from a standpoint of not having somebody control it at the top is very appealing to me. I don't want, you know, maybe maybe the people that create one of these coins have the best of intentions, but they're not going to be around forever. And the, the group that comes in after them says, you know what? Instead of 100 million, why don't we have 7 trillion coins outstanding? Bitcoin's never going to have that. There's only going to be 21 million coins.
0: Do you think that we could teach people... Um, responsibility when it comes to managing their own data or their keys?
1: Yeah, I, I do. Um, it's not, we're not anywhere near there today, um, but it, that's going to get easier. And that's the technology that people are working on 24, 7, 365 days around, not just here in the United States, around the world. So it's, it's just, you know, you're, you're young, considerably younger than I am. But when I first got on the internet, it was a very clunky experience. It was very hard to find things because there was no organization to it ultimately that changed, right? They put in the pipes, there was the ability to sort data, et cetera. Tim Berners-Lee made it where you could find information, type in an address, et cetera. That's, that's going to happen in the digital asset world. And it's happening as we speak at a very fast pace. So, you know, people are going to, you know, the average person who's not paying attention is going to suddenly sit up and say, oh, I, you know, I have this wallet on my phone and I can use it, you know, seamlessly. It's, it's not, we're not anywhere close to that, but it's, it's going to happen much faster than people think.
0: I agree. I changed all my outlook, uh, you know, getting more familiar with tech and understanding things over the last few years. I, I changed my next year outlook to three to five year outlook when I talk about
1: something or five to 10, right? So there's an old saying that, which is true, people tend to over overestimate technology in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. I, I didn't fully answer your question before. So to answer your question, we we have found a, number, a couple of other coins, probably six or seven other coins that have a good monetary policy. Most of them were forks off of the original Bitcoin blockchain, and they have a very similar monetary policy. We think those are going to have um, some real value. But all of the other coins, most of them you can forget about. They're they're you know there's going to be some wildly successful ones, I'm sure. But I have no ability to tell you which of the 8,400 is, is is going to do that. I can tell you from a from a network effect. And in terms of safety and where the hashing power is to keep the network safe, Bitcoin is by far the most dominant. It's something like 95% of the hashing power. And if you're going to consider it sending real value across a network, a digital network, you're going to choose Bitcoin. So does the company have investments
0: in Bitcoin mining, or do you guys have farms yourself?
1: We, we do. We, uh, we, got, we got involved in mining. Um, we raised uh, our money for two C-Corps, uh, you know, fairly modest amount, um, but we have a facility down in North Carolina that we own and that we run and we buy machines. And we, we're, some of the things that I talked about earlier about the yield on fixed income, we're in the business of helping people solve problems, right? And one of the problems is that interest rates are incredibly low and it's hard to get income. And mining as a business can provide a very attractive yield. Um, And there's periods of time when the, to mine a Bitcoin and what it's selling at, you you were talking of yields of excess of 100%. Now, I don't think that's going to be a long term return, but that's an opportunity to basically get fixed income that's not connected and correlated with the overall stock market or the bond market. Um, And that's the reason we did it. Um, And so far, it's been pretty successful. Now, my colleague who oversees this has done a fantastic job. Uh, when we first got involved with it, the prices of the machines were pretty expensive. They were, you know, $3,600. And he felt that the technology was gonna to continue to pr- improve and the prices were gonna come down. So you put a fairly modest amount of money and that's more or less what happened. So most of our peers that started at the same time went out of business because they allocated 100% of the capital, the price of the machines collapsed, the price of Bitcoin came down very substantially and they lost their money. We didn't do that. He didn't do that. And he's been reserving enough money with each pass in time that we mine coins that he can replace the machines that we currently have through the cash flow, in addition to paying a, a, a fairly attractive dividend right now. So well, it's, it's, it's been a great opportunity.
0: Yeah, some of the things I've seen or heard that, you know, uh, with the replacement of equipment, it could be CapEx, you know, intensive and maybe not always profitable, especially during a bear market. So how have you been able to survive?
1: Yeah, so just as I mentioned, uh, two two things. One, there's a lot of complexities to mining, right? There's the difficulty rate, there's the cost of the machines, there's the cost of the electricity, there's the location of the machines, et cetera. All of those things factor into it. And if you don't get those right, you can can go through your capital. And if you buy machines at a very high price and the price of Bitcoin collapses, you're basically, it's a losing proposition. So, you know, we, we had um, in particular, my might them, the same colleague had a lot of experience with the electric utility industry. And there's peak hours and there's off peak hours. And the reality is that you could maybe run your machines only 17 hours a day and still generate the same amount of coins, but reduce your electricity cost by 60, 70% because it's off peak and you're able to buy a kilowatt at a fraction of what you do during peak hours. So if you don't know that, and you're running during peak hours, your ability to produce a coin is going to be much more expensive than it is if you if you do it that way. If you went all in and you bought the machines at their all time high, and the prices collapsed for the chips, and you you ran into problems. So fortunately for us, um, you know we we had somebody who understood all of those complexities and navigated that quite well, and now we're in a good position where we're we're mining coins at a very profitable rate. Let's say the price is, uh, most recent number that I heard was somewhere between 55 and $6,500 a coin. And as I mentioned earlier, the price of a Bitcoin is roughly 35,000 right now. So highly profitable. Um, I don't think that's gonna stay at that level. And I think more competition is gonna come in. And our belief is that ultimately the mining industry, the digital currency mining industry is gonna be among the largest industries in the world. Um, there's, a, there's a supply constraint, equipment c- constraint right now, um, but that's going to solve itself over time.
0: Now, I heard something to the fact that you can u- utilize gas fields in exchange
1: for electricity. What is that? So th- w- you go out west and uh, particularly in the Permian bases and the, a lot of the byproduct of drilling for oil or fracking for oil more accurately is natural gas. And that natural gas comes up and there's no pipelines there. So they're just flaring it off. They're burning it off. It's a waste, right? It's going into the environment, not not a good thing for the environment. So people are going out there with trailers of Bitcoin mining machines, and they're hooking into that natural gas, and they're getting that natural gas for near free. So that's an energy source that's basically now being used that's not just going into the environment, that's helping to mine and secure the Bitcoin network and produce coins for people that invest in that. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's definitely has grown and it's likely to continue to grow. And particularly as they continue to do more fracking out in the Permian Basin. So when it comes to you know bringing more people into the network, do you think situations
0: like GameStop where there's some kind of action by centralized parties ultimately is beneficial for those type of investors to want to join the Bitcoin network? <laughs> yeah.
1: So great question. And I, I'm of the belief that GameStop was a watershed event for the financial market and people's understanding of how the system is played. And they can stop the trading in the security. They can increase the margin requirements. They can you know, you know, do a lot of things to, to investors. And for most people are perceiving that as the little guy is never meant to win and I wanna get out of that system. And when you think along those lines, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, by the way, when you think along those lines, the next thing is, well, what's a system that isn't centralized and isn't controlled by the government, and they, don't, they can't stop, and it, it, it leads you to Bitcoin. And if you look at the searches for Bitcoin, the number of wallets that are being opened, um, it's growing exponentially, and in the last couple of weeks, it, as a result of that GameStop, it's, it's just gone off the charts. So I think, I think people are gonna to come to that conclusion. Absolutely, they're gonna to come to that conclusion. I want, I want some portion of my money outside of this system that seems to be rigged and that I can clearly see that the government is debasing me out of my wealth. And I think a logical next step for that is I should own a little bit of Bitcoin. It's just interesting
0: how this whole COVID thing has showed up and kind of just laying all the cards out, right, and putting everything in order.
1: Yeah, it's, it's 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 um. There's a lot of it has exposed a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of corruption, a lot of um, rules and things that are meant for one group of people and not another group of people. Um, so yeah, there's, there's um, you know, the communication network and the internet has radically changed how people organize, right? And Reddit, I I see it, you know, on CNBC or or you know. CNN or Fox or whatever, they're portraying it as, you know, this group of ragtag people, but they actually, the, the trade itself was actually well thought out. And I went back and I read it and I, and I said, if I had read that in July of 2020, I would have said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm up for this. This is a chance where you could squeeze this and you could see how they would have to cover at a much, much higher price. So it wasn't like it was pure speculation. It was actually a pretty well thought out plan. But that community, you know, a couple of million people talking. That's not involving the government. And Bitcoin is just a bigger network that's not involving the government. And ultimately, more and more people are going to say, you know what, I think I should have some exposure to that. And I think I should, I think we can organize around a better thing. I think the people who are sent to Washington to represent me don't do a good job with it. They squander money, it takes them way too long to get stimulus checks out to people who are really hurting. And it doesn't seem like they have our best interest. And I want something, I want to rebuild society in the way, the way I live my life. And I think, I think that's what people are coming to that conclusion. A lot, a lot of people are coming to that conclusion.
0: It'll be interesting, you know, in another year or two uh, out after institutions have come into place, you know, into the Bitcoin and just see what ultimately plays out over the next year or two, it, it's going to be interesting.
1: Well, listen, the, the way I look at it, I, I, you know, it's funny. When I was growing up, I had um, friends whose parents might be um, specialists on the New York Stock Exchange. And a specialist would be able to see both the buys and the sells of the particular security they were making a market in. And they were allowed to trade around that information. And they were fairly wealthy people because of that ability. The Bitcoin blockchain, you're able to see where all of the coins are, where they're stored, how frequently they trade, And I look at that pretty regularly. There's a lot of companies that do the analysis on that. And I see that the demand is growing exponentially. And I see the supply being taken out of the market. So what happens when demand grows at a very rapid rate and there's limited supply, the correcting mechanism is the price. And, you know, again, the price is roughly 35000 it's not inconceivable to me that Bitcoin by the end of 2021 is three, four times higher than where it currently is based on, on that dynamic that I'm seeing. Now, that's no guarantee. Again, <laughs> it, should, it, should, it should be a small amount and you should do your own homework. But from my standpoint, I've already kind of jumped the mentality that I want to own dollars to I want to own Bitcoin as a store of value.
0: That's good. Let's leave off there and go to our last question. What is the biggest thing that you have implemented in your life as increase your net worth?
1: I would, I would say it started when I was very young. Listen, money to me is not really that interesting. Money provides freedom to me, right? It allows me to do the things that I want, not have to answer to people, show up at a job nine to five and, you know, take gruff from somebody. So I never really wanted money to buy fancy things or expensive cars. That's not, that's not what I am. So, I would say that I learned pretty early on that if nobody's going to give you money and you're not going to win the lotto, you have to live below your means. And that's kind of the most important thing to do. And if you, if you do that early on, you're already wealthy, right? Because you're not relying on it, somebody else. And now you can use that excess cash flow and start investing. And ultimately, you have the ability to grow enough of, a, of an investment pool that you buy yourself freedom. Um, and, and so for, for me, that's, that's, that's really what it was. And I, I, I understood that pretty young in my life. And I, I worked towards that. And I was fortunate enough, and, you know, obviously, some of life is luck. I was fortunate enough to basically create that situation for myself.
0: That's good. I always this is one of you know, my favorite questions, because it always gives me great insight and listeners great insight to how, you know, people have done well, and the, the different methods they've used.
1: Yeah. So, I, you know, I would say if, if you want to read a book that's, I think, uh, you know, how to, how to learn how to think about investing, it's not necessarily an, a, a book about investing, but it's uh, written by Charlie Munger, who is the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, right? A long-term partner of Warren Buffett. And it's called Poor Charlie's Almanac. And it really, it talks about mental models and how to think. And he uses a he does a much better job using the example of Coke when they decided to buy Coke and going through the various aspects of, of things that you should be looking about and thinking about um, when making an investment. And it's, it's a collection of essays. So it, you can start at you know, the first essay or you can start at essay number 27, but it's an important book actually. And I think it would really help anyone who has an interest in investing to read that book.
0: Well, thank you. And if anybody wants to get a hold of you or just learn more about your companies or anywhere they should go. Yeah,
1: yeah so we, we more recently, um, investment vehicle to hedge against the risk that uh, that I explained to you. Um, beyond that, you can reach us at horizonkinetics.com and we have a lot of uh, good content on our website and that h- would help people to understand our investment philosophy uh, as well as cryptocurrencies. We've uh, My colleague has written a number of great essays on cryptocurrencies that people can read. if They want basic knowledge on that.
0: All right, Peter. Well, it was a great time today and I appreciate you coming on. Joe, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and a review.
1: See you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to the Joe Robert Show.
0: Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joRobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show.